And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on this fine Tuesday, March 26th. And we got a lot to talk about. So much going on, so many stories, so many things that will really affect the outcome of this country. But it's funny, if you actually took a matrix and made a matrix of all the stories going on from most important to least important, from most consequential to least consequential, of course, you could count on the phony conservative media to discuss the most about the least consequential things and the least about the most consequential things. It is perfect every time. It's going to be the soap opera all the time. None of the policy outcomes destroying this country. So, you know, right after the Mueller news, we were unlucky enough to have Avenatti arrested. Not that I don't want to see him arrested. It's just that Oh, God. So that's all we're going to focus on now. You know, it's funny. Today, everyone is up in arms in conservative media about Jesse Smollett uh, getting off free in Chicago, the prosecutor choosing not to indict him for his false uh, uh, story given to the police. And I was thinking like, wow, everyone is suddenly outraged that we have a racialist criminal justice system, the exact opposite of what the political class accuses. Hey, where were you uh, joining me when the political class was complaining our system was too racist towards blacks and opposing jailbreak? Instead, a lot of these same hustlers on our side that are seem to be outraged by this actually were paid off to be on the other side of that. Look, this is just one man. What about what the criminal justice system is doing for illegal aliens? See what I mean? I mean, I'm outraged about this too, but you know what I mean? Like, they'll focus on this. Why? Because Trump had a fight with him. (laughs) Meaning, unless Trump mentioned something, it didn't happen. Both if you like Trump or hate Trump. You only know what to focus on if Trump focuses on it. So we don't have a conservative movement. Intermittently, we might have some conservatives espousing a couple of conservative talking points here and there. If Trump happens to stumble upon it, then they'll stumble upon it. But we don't have a concerted, deliberate, focused movement every day waking up, looking at the force multiplying policies to see what we can and should be doing. That's why we're here. So I have to do a little bit of triage here because there's just so much going on. Trying to figure out what to cover. And it looks like the president is holding a press conference too this afternoon. So we're going to miss some of this. But as you all know, everything that matters happens in the courts. Okay? Because we were told that the courts can do no wrong. So they could grab power for themselves from the other branches of government and no one will push back. And once they grab that power, they are the sole and final arbiter of every political, social question imaginable, abstract policy question, and that's it. 
That's the law of the land. So certainly what's going on in the courts is what matters. For today's show, I want to demonstrate for you once and for all why the courts are a one-way street and a dead end for conservatives who think somehow we could win policy fights in the courts and why it's better if we take policy fights away from the courts um, than the opposite. And I know I've done a lot of these shows before, but there's so much going on in the courts in terms of what's being heard in oral arguments today before the Supreme Court, cases being filed in the Supreme Court, cases that have been decided recently, the consequences, obviously, of the immigration cases that are destroying our sovereignty. And I want to give to you an assessment of what is the true role of the courts vis-a-vis public policy, guarding constitutional rights, rules of standing and justiciability, where the other branches fit in, where the citizenry fits in, what what it should be what should happen what is ultimately happening and you know how how things fit in when you know sometimes it looks like we file lawsuits in the courts well daniel i thought you didn't like taking things to the courts well what thing in what way when's it appropriate and when is it not and even when it's appropriate for the courts to get involved are they the final say what if they didn't make the right decision let's say they had standing to hear the case It's not the right decision and has bearings on the rest of the country and public policy. There are ways to push back with the other branches. They're not the final say. So we're going to run the gamut of cases, First Amendment, Second Amendment, immigration, suing public officials, gerrymandering, um, probably forgetting some here, but try to plug this into the equation so you could just understand how screwed up the courts are. But while we're going through this, I'm going to explain what I believe is the true Northern star on what the courts are for and what they're not for. Oh, oh, that's right. The Obamacare case. I forgot about that. With DOJ filing a brief on the side of Texas, now in the fifth circuit, trying to say Obamacare is unconstitutional. So there's going to be some cases where, you know, we would like the outcome of the courts getting involved, at least the political outcome. Some cases we wouldn't. All right. So what's what's the story, Daniel? You want you want the courts to get involved where you like the outcome, but not where you don't. What does that mean? So, again, we're going to go through this. So first case. And it's amazing to me how this is not bigger news while everyone's talking about Jesse, whatever his name is, Smollett in Chicago, again, it's because Trump tweeted about that, whereas we haven't talked about Kate Steinle, but I'm very surprised, very surprised, um, very, very surprised that people aren't focused on this, which again, just shows how we're not, we're not focused. As I mentioned last week with yet another I was about to say another sanctuary city death, but there's been many of them. But I was specifically referring to Bambi Larson, the case in San Jose, where an eight-time or nine-time convicted criminal alien who had nine ICE detainers on him was let go. 
I noted that one of the ways of getting back at sanctuary cities would be if Congress authorizes a federal cause of action to have an actionable claim suing these dudes, suing people that violate federal law and don't honor ICE detainers and don't notify ICE when they are to be released. And of course, nobody in Congress is taking it up. I'm trying to ask people to do it. It's like pulling teeth. So hard to get so-called conservatives to even introduce legislation that's just for messaging purposes. I mean, it's just, we're, we're, we're screwed up. But anyway, lo and behold, yesterday, three-judge panel for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rules that Kate Steinle's family cannot sue the city of San Francisco and the former sheriff for not turning over this Zarate guy, Jose Zarate, who murdered Kate Steinle. Many of you remember on July uh, 1st, 2015, Kate Steinle was murdered on San Francisco Pier 14 when this illegal happened to just pick up a 40 caliber gun and, and fire it. I guess he was just testing it out and killed Kate Steinle. She died in her father's arms. This was a classic case. Like we see every day, a guy was, the guy was deported five times. He came back because sanctuaries are a magnet and he was imprisoned a number of times. The most recent time before the murder was he was locked up on drug charges two and a half months and was let go two and a half months before the murder. And the obviously ICE was not notified. So to begin with, in terms of criminal charges, in December 2017, a San Francisco jury acquitted Zarate of all murder charges, including manslaughter. So we knew they weren't going to land first degree there, obviously, but um, that included manslaughter. So the Justice Department came in and charged him with possession of a firearm in voluntary manslaughter and assault with a deadly weapon and... The guy is still appealing it. So justice has not been served yet, even in that case. But the point is, the family wanted to have a, a civil claim against these sanctuary officials. And they were rebuffed by the district judge and now rebuffed by the Ninth Circuit. Now... I wanted you to, you guys already understand that quite literally, and you see it at our border, the inmates run the asylum, okay? Quite literally, play on words there, the asylum. Uh, we don't run our own country. So while illegals have full access to courts, victims of illegal immigrants who are Americans do not have access to address their grievances in the courts. Now, in terms of to me, the egregious thing is the hypocrisy. The opinion itself, look, you know I'm more strict on the standards for immunity and, and, and suing political issues and whatever. But again, to be clear, the Steinle family is not trying to sue or strike down a policy. They're, they're just saying the consequences of your negligence, my daughter died. 
Okay, so they're suing. So they're not they're not trying to use the courts to veto or nullify or legislate a policy. They're just trying to get damages like we have throughout our society. We're a very litigious society. <clears throat> And you could sue everyone, but somehow it seems like the only time you can never get standing to sue is if you sue officials for blatantly violating federal law and your violation of Section 17, 17, uh, 1373 of 8 USC, uh, you know, the, uh, that part of the INA, somehow you don't have a gestational claim. Very interesting. But again, I, I could understand that absent a direct either state or federal cause of action, you know, you're not able to sue. But then again, I would apply that consistently with all frivolous lawsuits against um, law enforcement and elected officials when it stems from a, you know, a certain policy. But but what we do see in the Ninth Circuit is this hypocrisy beyond belief that's essentially Jim Crow for American citizens. We have, like you had in the Jim Crow South, where if you were black during the day, you could not get a fair hearing in front of a court. We essentially have that with American citizens versus illegal aliens. Illegals could get standing to sue policies, to nullify policies, to nullify our border, to shut down our Long-standing immigration traditions, 200 years of case law, illegal aliens marching in a caravan to invade our country outside of our shores could get access to our courts. But Americans who are killed by those illegals as a result of not following federal law, somehow they have no recourse. That is the problem I have, but let me take this a step further. As you remember just last week or two weeks ago, This very same Ninth Circuit ruled that illegal aliens have habeas corpus rights to appeal deportations at any stage to Article III courts, even in cases where federal statute says they don't have a cause of action, where where they cannot sue, where the courts cannot hear the case. They decide to hear it anyway. Yet suddenly when it comes to Kate Steinle's parents... Oh, I don't know. I mean, state law doesn't allow us to hear the case. There's no, it's, it's discretionary immunity. Now, first of all, I don't like the way they wrote it to begin with, even if, aside from the hypocrisy. They're basically saying you don't have to listen. It's discretionary. It's not true. Congress p- passed 1373 requiring them to share information on illegal aliens in their jurisdiction as part of the Welfare Reform Act. It was to ensure that jurisdictions with illegals don't get extra federal funding. It was meant as a mandate. So, guess who this judge was? I didn't tell you yet. The one who wrote the opinion. It was Mark Bennett. Mark Bennett. Do you know who Mark Bennett is? He's a Trump appointee to the Ninth Circuit. He was the former uh, Hawaii attorney general, need need I say more. Every Democrat voted for him. Hirono, that satanic liberal senator from Hawaii, called him refreshing. And actually 27 Republicans voted against him because he doesn't believe in the Second Amendment. He filed briefs against Heller 
doesn't believe in the First Amendment with Citizens United. So we got a Trump appointee doing this, by the way. Ironically, one of the other judges, sometimes you have visiting judges of different circuits. You had Stephanie Thacker, who is a judge for the Fourth Circuit. She actually sat on this panel. Do you know that in 2017, she was one of the judges who ruled that foreign nationals, you're a Somali sitting in a shack in Somalia, you have the right to enter our country and access the courts to file a claim that by keeping out Somalians, we're violating the Establishment Clause Religious liberty rights where we're blocking out Muslims. Now you're starting to get the hang of what I'm going to talk about today. See, what is very much within the province of the court is an individualized claim. I'm not trying to seek public policy, deal with political issues. I have a fundamental right at stake or I'm, I'm affected in, a, in not a BS way. Look, we're all affected by every policy in some way, but I mean in a real, individualized, tangible way. It's, it's not fundamentally a political issue. It's dealing with a real constitutional right with real, imminent, immediate, direct, individualized harm. Of course, I agree you can go to the courts. Everyone asked me, well, Daniel... You know, what happens if the other political branches violate your real rights? So you don't believe that a court, you think a court just applies the law, it can't, you know, block uh, executive policy or even a legislative statute. And the answer is, of course, as one, not as the sole and final arbiter, but as one of the avenues to seek redress, of course, you can go to a court. But the courts have to follow the rules of justiciability and standing and then certainly properly interpret the statute of the Constitution. And if they violate any one of those, the other branches have ample ability and authority, as as, uh, Hamilton predicted in Federalist 78, to push back against that, to not give it effect. And that's the separation of powers. In other words, the courts don't strike down executive actions. They don't strike down laws. People don't understand what judicial review is when understood properly. All they do is in a proper case with standing in front of them, they give relief to a plaintiff. For you, look, government's trying to take away your property. No, you you own you you could keep it. That's all they do. They don't strike down statutes. They don't make broad policies dealing with the border. And they certainly can't reach across international borders and grant standing to illegal aliens as the Supreme Court said numerous times. But individual Americans that have a real harm, you have the right to go to a court. But we flip it right on its head. But I just wanted you guys to know this because no one else is going to write about this. That Kate Stanley's parents were denied this. So now, the hypocrisy of the Ninth Circuit is true. Whether... If I sat on that judge, that panel, would I say there's an actionable right? I could be not. But why doesn't anyone in Congress give such an actionable right? That's my whole idea. We're such a litigious society. Why don't we use it against the sanctuary cities? But anyway, that's the first case we're going to talk about today. Okay. 
Now, obviously, you have the immigration cases, like I said, where it's like, hey, I don't like your asylum policy. Well, a court has no right over that. A court doesn't grant visas. A court doesn't grant marriage licenses. These are executive branch functions. A court can't coerce the other branches into doing anything. Nor could it veto their actions. So now, again, a court certainly can't place a positive on a, on a negative action of an executive branch. What if they place a negative on the positive? In other words, the executive branch wants to do something to you to an individual citizen, and a court wants to grant relief. So they could grant relief for the judicial department for that branch of government. A court could say, and then you know, pending an appeal, and then it would be final at the Supreme Court that for the rules of this department of government, we're going to treat. These cases like this, because we believe statute says this, or we believe the Constitution says this, and therefore the statute's a problem. But it doesn't strike it down. And if the other branches want to follow up and push back, they could do that. Well, then plaintiffs will go back to the courts. Other plaintiffs will go to the courts. And the courts will say the same thing. And again, Ultimately, the public, through public opinion, through elections, they're going to decide who who is right. Goes back and forth. That's how it, the system was designed to work. What am I getting at? Let's talk about the Obamacare case. So a lot of you heard the news. It's amazing what a defeat mechanism the conservative movement is. If you would talk to anyone else but me, this is the best week ever. Avenatti was arrested and the Mueller thing, you know, report is over. And um, look, Obamacare is gone. Well, no, no, Obamacare is not gone. The Justice Department chose to weigh in on behalf of Texas in the suit. They're not deciding anything. It's the court that's going to decide. So this is a very complicated case. A lot of you want to know, well, Daniel, you don't like taking fundamental foreign policy, national security, election law, um, border questions to the courts. Well, look, there's nothing more fundamental than Obamacare. It was a fundamental political debate. Really, I mean, you support going to a court to, um, to, to nullify it? So... Let me explain what I believe in and what I don't. The part of this that I think is right and the part of it is not right. Again, let's plug in the equation. When you have a real, valid, individualized injury from a real infringement upon a real constitutional right, of course you can go to a court. Okay, but just with the caveat that the court, in my view, is not the final say, even if they want to grant you relief, it's not self-executing on the other branches of government and universally binding on citizens that are not a party to the litigation until they become a party to the litigation. So it's not binding on the other citizens, and it's, and it's not self-executing against the other branches of government. 
they can push back if we if they believe you got it wrong. And and indeed, if you take the logic of Marbury to its logical conclusion, they have an obligation to push back. And indeed, as Hamilton noted, they purposely didn't give the tools of enforcement to the courts. They gave it to the executive branch. This certainly comes into play when people are suing for positive benefits, not real rights. Oh, I want a visa. I want a um, marriage license. Well, who issues that? The executive branch. So So there's two things, two steps here. Number one, courts don't have the power to veto laws and policies. Self-executing, universally binding. Their power is someone with legitimate standing that litigant, that case, to decide a case and grant them relief if it's if it's if they're asking for relief in the case of a constitutional right at stake. But number two is even even on that account, the other branches could still push back against it if they disagree. Even if there wasn't a power grab, but they believe that they got the decision wrong. So just to begin with, you know, if if I would go to the courts and the courts would so-called strike down Obamacare, I believe Obamacare is unconstitutional because I believe Congress has, the federal government has no power. It's not one of the enumerated powers to regulate insurance to death. I believe guaranteed issue and community rating and redistribution of wealth through Medicaid is unconstitutional. But nonetheless, it's not because a court, let's just say a court would say that, it's not because a court said it, it's because I believe that's what the Constitution says. We believe in constitutional supremacy, not judicial supremacy. Who decides that? All three branches and the people together. And when there's disagreements, well, they have various tools to push back. A court could adjudicate another case. Congress could promulgate more regulations. The executive branch could affect them. And you go back and forth. Now, I would agree with the court because I would agree that that's what the Constitution means, but not because I would say, oh, it's struck down. It's not struck down. Courts cannot veto. No no such power exists. But I do have problems with specific things, and I do disagree with the Justice Department and Texas in this case. So, you know, I'm not going to rehash our... Um, the podcast we did a couple months ago on this very case, because I, you know, I don't, we're running out of time, and I want to get to some other cases, other news of the day. But I believe in December we did a show just explaining, you know, the nuances of what what we believe is appropriate for the court to do and to take to the court vis-a-vis Obamacare, and what is really a political question that is not left to the courts. Okay, so as as I'm talking, I'm sorry I didn't prepare this. I'm going to try to find where that, which episode it was, which number, so you could look it up. But, um, you know, that's, the, the basic gist of it is this. The, the, the easiest problem with Obamacare was the individual mandate. Not necessarily from a policy standpoint, it's not the worst policy, but from a constitutional standpoint, because you are forcing the individual 
for, with the penalty of of a fine to purchase a private product. Put another way, you're coercing an individual to engage in commerce. You're criminalizing a negative act. There's no way that could be constitutional within the purview of the federal government, enumerated powers. No way. Everyone agrees to that. So if, if, if I have the force of government telling me you must purchase a private plan, I have the right to go to a court and say, no, I don't want to purchase. I'm not, it's not a striking down. I don't want to purchase. Court could grant me relief. But what a court cannot do is, you know, look, I think Obamacare sucks. I think the regs suck. The Medicaid does. Now, I understand. I also believe it's unconstitutional, but nobody is asserting that, that directly guaranteed issue community rating Medicaid expansion are unconstitutional. No one's asserting that. And look, at this point, we can't have the courts say everything done over the last 100 years is unconstitutional. I mean, look, I believe Social Security is unconstitutional, but you know what I mean? At, at, at this point, it's, it's not good to have the courts decide that. But they're not asserting that. What, what, what the Texas and the DOJ are trying to say, that once the individual mandate is struck down, so then the whole law is not severable. There's no provision in the law se- um, separating it out. And therefore, the whole law is struck down. And that's the position DOJ just took. That's the news you might have heard last night. Okay? That's problematic in, in two ways. So the whole justiciability, the whole um, severability thing is a problem in the sense that the way I explain the judiciary to you, right away you're, you know, it should raise your ire. Wait a minute. Congress, The courts don't veto. They don't strike down laws. They issue relief. So you said you don't want to buy health insurance. Okay, so don't buy health insurance. You don't have to. It doesn't strike down the Medicaid, the guaranteed issue, community rating, there's all sorts of other things that barred physicians from owning hospitals, all the things in Obamacare. It doesn't do that. That's not how these things work. By definition, if you're the whole severability doctrine that once one part of a law is struck down, another part is struck down is not true. Because if it's not the case and it's not what the litigants are seeking and nor are they entitled to such redress, we don't strike down even the part that they are seeking redress, much less this parsimonious striking down of the rest of it. I just fundamentally that's making the courts into a, a quasi executive veto leg- and, and a legislature. That's just not what a court is. So I cannot agree with that, even though I would like that political outcome, of course. But I I just, I can't sign on to such a belief. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, Daniel, well, isn't that exactly what even Scalia and Thomas were going to do originally if they had Robert's vote? back in the day with NFIB v. Sebelius, the original Obamacare case. Wasn't that what was going to happen? So, a couple things here. A couple things. 
in order to answer that question, I need to first go over with you another problem with this ruling, with this with this um, agenda of DOJ in Texas. And that is when it comes to um, when it comes to where is this? I'm sorry. It's just I, I got it right here. It's episode 322. How conservatives should view Obamacare ruling in the role of the, the judiciary. But I'm just going to briefly finish it here. Even the individual mandate, it's a, it's a big problem. As you well know, in the tax law, Congress already zeroed out the penalty. So again, if if you're striking down statutes in the abstract, it's understandable where even though the penalty is zero, but the statute is still on the book, so I'm striking it down. But we already said by definition it would violate separation of powers, and it's fundamentally not the role of the judiciary, and it's unconstitutional, and it can't veto things. So what you're doing is just granting relief. So what's the relief you're seeking? I don't want to purchase it, so don't purchase it. No, what's going to happen to you? Where is the injury in fact? As, a, as such, where's the standing to even bring the case? That's the, that's the problem now. See, back in NFIB v. Sebelius, so that was real. You were being forced to do it back then. Now, the other part of that is, too, that as I'm going to read to you in a minute from Justice Thomas, the deal is, I my, my feeling is, I know Thomas directly, but I think Scalia also, they didn't like the severability doctrine and they wanted to stop it. But nonetheless, that is what the courts are doing. So I think their their attitude was, look, what's good for the goose is good for the gander at the time, is that we do this on everything else. We say, well, once one thing is struck down, another thing is, but I don't believe in striking down. So they're going to do it with Obamacare too. But Thomas made it clear, and I, and I, and I want to read this to you because I think this is very... This was a case last year. It had to do with Congress ruling that a statute barring states from having sports betting is unconstitutional. What was this? Murphy v. National Collegiate Athletic Association from last year. Clarence Thomas really had a great opinion. He gave a concurring opinion where he said, because what the court did in the time is they said the whole law is unconstitutional not just the part that they were dealing with without you wouldn't have the time to get into this the whole professional and amateur sports protection act but thomas said the following and i think this will give you a very good understanding of what a court is and isn't unlike the dissent i do doubt that congress can prohibit Sports gambling that does not cross state lines. Okay, he said that. I'm, I'm just getting this here. Um, okay, because PASPA, that's the name of the law, is at least partially unconstitutional, our precedents instruct us to determine which portions of the statute we must sever and excise. The court must make this severability determination by asking a counterfactual question. Would Congress still have passed the valid sections had it known about the constitutional invalidity, uh, the constitutional invalidity of the other portions of the statute? 
I joined the court's opinion because it gives the best answer it can to this question, and no party has asked us to apply a different test. But in a future case, we should take another look at our severability precedents. Those precedents appear to be in tension with traditional limits on judicial authority. Early American courts did not have severability doctrine. They recognized that the judicial power is fundamentally the power to render judgments in individual cases. Judicial review was by was a byproduct of that process. As Chief Justice Marshall famously explained, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is because those who apply the rule to particular cases must of necessity expound and interpret that rule. If a plaintiff relies on a statute but a defendant argues that the statute conflicts with the Constitution, the courts must resolve that dispute. And if they agree with it, the defendant, follow the higher law of the Constitution. Thus, when early American courts determined that a statute was unconstitutional, they would simply decline to enforce it in the case before them. There was no next step in which the courts inquired into whether the legislature would have preferred no law at all to the constitutional remainder. Despite this historical practice, the the court's modern cases treat the severability doctrine as a remedy for constitutional violations and ask which provisions of the statute must be excised. Invalidating a statute is not a remedy, like an injunction, a declaration, or damages. Remedies operate with with respect to specific parties, not on legal rules in the abstract. And he quotes, you know, case law saying that the power to review acts of Congress is little more than the negative power to disregard unconstitutional enactment and that the court enjoins not the uh, execution of the statute, but the acts of the official. And the courts do not have power to excise or to strike down statutes. Invalidation by courts is a figure of speech. It's a lazy one at that, I would add. Federal courts have no authority to erase duly enacted law from the statute books. And then he says, because courts cannot take a blue pencil to statutes, the severability doctrine must be an exercise in statutory interpretation. In other words, the severability doctrine has has courts decide how a statute operates once they conclude that part of it cannot be constitutionally enforced. And then whatever, he goes on, I don't want to get too complicated here. But the point is, you can't say, oh, this is struck down, that is struck down. So at best in this case, you could say the individual mandate will go away. But anyway, it's zeroed out. And if it's zeroed out, you shouldn't get standing because that's another problem. Where's your injury? Now, the best case I heard from one of the litigants who's who filed the lawsuit on behalf of Texas I, I was having a friendly debate with him about this. I was like, look, you know, I, I, I would love for this policy outcome. But, you know, A, we all know that as a matter of policy outcomes, Congress is just going to – all the Republicans would panic if this would happen. And they would totally just pass something even worse than Obamacare. We're never going to wind up winning on that if it's done in this way. And then legally, we, we just would have set the precedent – that even the most political issues of the left, we could take the courts to strike down, and then we have no leg to stand on anymore in fighting their stuff, which is 10 times worse and, and much more numerous. The best he could tell me is that, look, Daniel, 
at the end of the day, even though there's no penalty, there still is the force of the federal government telling you that you are in violation of law if you're not purchasing a private product. And he brought in cases like, you know, if you're applying for certain jobs, especially with the federal government, you know, they could take that into account. And if they see you don't have insurance, that, you know, you're treated like you are a lawbreaker. And that that could affect you. Even, you know, so it, it, it's, it's interesting and I think under existing loose standing, I don't blame Judge Reed O'Connor for doing what he did. Remember, Judge Reed O'Connor didn't put any injunction on at all. All he did was give declaratory um, he, uh, a, a ruling where he said, look, he just declared, I believe it's unconstitutional. And in terms of severability, he's just following existing doctrine. So I don't blame Reed O'Connor in what he did. But I will just tell you, I believe standing rules need to be stronger to comport with the constitutional construct of Article 3 of what the judicial power is. And I believe the severability doctrine fundamentally is unconstitutional. It's a power grab. So I can't support what DOJ is doing, and I can't cheer for that sort of outcome. But again, to, to, to be clear, you could take stuff to a court. That's fine. And in some cases, I think it's it's laudatory to do so. I think that is one of the avenues we need when there is a violation. But just understand, because a lot of people are like, Daniel, well, to strike down or not to strike down, that is the question. It's not the question. It's like, okay, Daniel, should we have judicial engagement, judicial more activism, or passivity? And the answer is neither. It's a false question because it's premised on the fact that there's some sort of lever that the judiciary is holding. Do 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 judicial review. Boom! Like like you press a lever, and like it enacts it enacts an irrevocable edict. It's not how it works. So it's it's a false choice. It's not such a big deal. So a judge could write whatever he wants. That's your opinion. Now all things equal. In that case, we're gonna follow it. But in other cases, it's not binding. And if we disagree with what you said, maybe even in that case, we might use our powers to kind of conflict with what you're doing in the judiciary. You'll fight back against us, and it goes it goes around. That is the separation of powers as our founders understood it. What other people are espousing their understanding of judicial review is judicial North Korea. It's antithetical to everything the founders ever believed in. Now that you understand what we're saying here, you can understand the absurdity of the next case we're going to talk about, just real briefly before before we uh, run out of time. Today, the Second Circuit is hearing, or maybe by now has heard, oral arguments in Trump's appeal against the district judge that literally ruled that people, private citizens, have the right to access Trump's Twitter account. That t- Trump cannot block anyone on Twitter. It's as if Trump is um, violating their First Amendment rights. So, again, how could you get standing to someone else, access someone else's Twitter account? Which, by the way, you could just sign in as a different account and you could always see it. <laughs> anyway, but, I mean, the only one who could totally block you is Twitter themselves. And no one's taking them to court. That's the irony. But... If anything, you're blocking Trump's First Amendment right. 
As long as Twitter gives me an account, I have the right to use it the way I want. I don't have the right. Right, People think blocking, like I'm putting a gag on you. No, I'm just protecting my account that only people who I want to see it could see it. That's where you get the absurdity where a court could decide any dust up in society, any political question, any any cat fight, any social media cat fight. That is not a justiciable question. That is a fundamental. It's not just that they're wrong on the merits of the First Amendment, which, of course, they are. They flip it on its head. I have a right to your First Amendment, but you don't have the right to your own First Amendment. But even just on the role of the courts, that's not something you could take to a court. So that's that's an easy one. Let's go to the Supreme Court. Today, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a gerrymandering case. Very fundamental case. Now, this is tricky because technically in this particular case, there's an outcome that both Democrats and Republicans would like. Okay? So... Maryland Republicans are taking um, Maryland's districts to court and North Carolina Democrats are taking those districts to court. And Paul Clement was, you know, they combined both cases and Paul Clement was arguing, you know, the courts need to stay out of this. And I agree with him. I say this as someone who politically would be on the beneficial side of the courts getting involved. I live in Maryland's third district. You could Google it. It is the most gerrymandered district in the country. It is egregious. It's terrible what they've done. It's a power grab. But at the end of the day, the only thing worse than a political gerrymander is a, is a legal judicial gerrymander. What is the remedy? So what? The courts say struck down. Well, the courts can't strike down. And then by definition, what that what then happens is that if the courts have the final power through veto, they're essentially positively legislating. They're essentially drawing the maps because then you have to keep coming back to them. Is this good? Is this good? No, you have to do it like this. I'm sorry, folks. We didn't adopt that in our constitution. Federal courts don't have such a power. That's what they're doing in North Carolina, babysitting them. If I now look. If we're going to have that system, yes, I want my revenge. And you better believe we're going to do it in Maryland, which is much more egregious than North Carolina because North Carolina Republicans were essentially keeping the squiggly lines. They didn't create the squiggly lines. They were there when the Democrats controlled it for many decades. They made their own modifications for what was beneficial to them like the Democrats did for them, and no one had any problems. So the problem is so far the courts have been a one-way street. They only strike down the Democrat, the Republican stuff, but never never the Democrat stuff. Finally, finally, Maryland has made it to the Supreme Court. First of all, politically, like I'm telling you, on net, it would benefit us getting the courts out of it because for every one Democrat district they'll strike down, they'll strike down 10 Republican ones. That's what always happens in the courts and has happened so far. But fundamentally, it's not their role. This is what I want you to contrast to an individualized right of you have to purchase insurance or I want to sue government negligence that directly led to death of my child. I don't like your district. It's unfair. 
That is the most fundamental public policy question. It's at its core political question. Yeah, you could say it affects everyone in the state, but the notion that you can get standing for that is ridiculous. And I, I want to see the court finally say, we are staying out of it. But to be, I want to be very clear here. The court, while saying that, needs to dictate to the lower courts in unambiguous terms that they must stay out as well. Because you know what we've seen recently is the court, the Supreme Court might be passive, which they've kind of been so far anyway, but the lower courts have been active as, as anything. So what I'd hate to see is the courts kind of say, yeah, we declined to take up both North Carolina and Maryland in each direction. So that will benefit opposing sides in each case. And then the lower courts keep doing what they're doing. They have to say, we are leaving it to the people and the legislature. Meaning the legislature draws them, or if the people, pursuant to the rules and constitution of their states, want to have independent commissions like some states are doing. I have mixed feelings on that, but that's a political question. You could do that. Or there's something called state judiciaries. Okay? Remember, the North Carolina maps were upheld by Obama's DOJ. They were cleared by it. And twice by the North Carolina Supreme Court. It was the Fourth Circuit that got involved and screwed with it. That's nonsense. If you remember, it was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that did give the Democrats several extra districts in Pennsylvania. But part of why we were so screwed is that we got the lowest common denominator of both. Again, because courts are a one-way street and a dead end. We didn't benefit from the state courts that sided with Republicans in the other state. So we got wherever the state courts agreed with the Democrats, we went with them. And wherever the federal courts agreed with the Democrats, we went with them. If we're going to fully just keep it in the state courts in all 50 states, then I think that is the better solution. That is not the role of the federal courts. State courts, it depends on their state constitution. But fundamentally, it needs the people have to decide the politics. You can't take a district to court. Oh, I'll, you make me show photo ID at the court. That That's not a fundamental thing I'm taking away from you. Show me where you can't get ID and then come back to me. Okay, that's not a grievance. Which leads me to the final case, guns. What is the ultimate, ultimate legitimate case for courts to come get involved with? Yet of all the things the courts get involved with, every public policy question, the most quintessential job of a court, at least as it relates to, def to judicial review and defending constitutional rights, they won't do, and that's what the gun stock, uh, bump stock ban. So anyway, as of last week or two weeks ago, there were 63 cases where the courts shut down Trump policies. And that includes even where Trump was doing nothing more than merely countermanding an executive power grab of Obama and just reinstating what was there before. Every last thing they put a universal injunction on. Finally, they found one act of this administration that they're willing to be passive on. And that is the one area where the administration actually exceeded the law. And that is in the unilateral directive of the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms under DOJ to reclassify and legislate bump stocks, nothing more than composite pieces of plastic, as machine guns. 
retroactively as of today. That's what I'm talking about. As of today, went into effect retroactively class demanding confiscating the property without due process of Americans that thousands of people that have purchased them went lawfully retroactively confiscated. So it violates the Second Amendment, probably, and certainly ex post facto and the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. And of course, that would be true if Congress did that. If Congress would pass a law tomorrow and say, all right, retroactively, anyone in possession of bump stocks, even if they bought them legally, has to surrender them. If not, they're classified as, as a felon up to 10 years in prison. No. Most certainly, unilaterally, I mean, th- this is the one thing Trump's doing that's actually just like Obama. Yet, this is the one thing it went before a Trump judge of the D.C. District. And guess what? Guess what? Nothing to talk about. They said, no, no, it, it fits the definition of statute. No, 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 it's fine. Folks, here you can understand. This is not just, look, obviously everything's ultimately political, and this is well, everything winds up being a political question. But at its core, you are taking an individual, and for the first time in since 80 and 84 years of this statute, you know, barring the ownership of... Uh, transfer and possession of, of machine guns, the National Firearms Act of 1934, and retroactively making felons of Americans. I mean, Fifth Amendment taking clause straight up. It's individualized. It's, it's ex post facto. It's Second Amendment. The most unambiguous rights. So, of course, I believe someone has the right as one of the many ways of public protest, going through the other branches, using the media, but also going to a court and seeking relief. Now, yes, I would agree that, look, it's only the plaintiffs in that case, and it's not universally binding on people that aren't made plaintiffs that don't get a ruling of the court, but that the administration should listen to it anyway because that is the real Constitution. But, um... But nonetheless, all the courts are doing it. This is the one place where they declined to do it. And as of the recording, as of now, because there's several of these emergency requests into the Supreme Court, but John Roberts denied it. So John Roberts has no problem shutting down the administration and allowing the lower courts to shut down our border with now three to 4,000 illegals a day coming across as a result of these illegal court orders violating precedent of the court, violating statute, violating sovereignty. He has no problem screwing with the administration. But suddenly he defers to the administration when they actually violate the individualized rights of Americans, Second Amendment, without a statute, done ex post facto, retroactively taking property without due process. Folks, that is exactly what Hamilton and John Marshall talked about when they said, and only in a rare case where it's fundamentally repugnant to the Constitution, 
are they going to say a law is unconstitutional? This, folks, is exactly, and it's not even a law. It's against the law. It's extra statutory. This is where it is. This is what I want you to understand why the courts are a one-way street and a dead end. American victims of illegal aliens, they can't get standing in court. States can't get standing to sue the federal government for invading them with illegal aliens and not following law. But states that violate law could get standing to sue the feds for enforcing the law. Everything's backwards. Everything's backwards. That's what I wanted you guys to know. Now look, not all executive actions are created equal. There's two questions you have to ask. The president took an action. Well, is it inherent constitutional authority? Sometimes he does, even without a statute. Like I believe he has the authority to keep out, to deny entry to any alien. Anyway, Congress did delegate that authority on top of it under 212F. Well, nobody could say the president has inherent constitutional authority to regulate firearms. So then that brings us to the second thing. Okay, is there a statute? So obviously the statute is 18 USC section 9220 makes it unlawful to own or transfer to transfer or possess a machine gun. Well, what's a machine gun? 26 USC 5845B defines it as any weapon which shoots is designed to shoot or can be readily restored to shoot automatically more than one shot without manual reloading by a single function of the trigger. It was very clear and everyone understood and the ATF understood for many years that anything that speeds up the firing biologically allows your finger to chomp down to... um engage the trigger in a quicker way is still a semi-auto. Rapidly bumping up the firing rate of a semi-auto is not a machine gun. At the end of the day, you could parse words here and split hairs, but the one distinguishing characteristic, which is very clear in the statute, and as anyone just dealing with guns and gun regulations would have understood for 84 years, one trigger, one one bullet. And that still applies with bump stocks. As effective as you might think they could be in bumping up the firing rate, remember, rubber bands and shoelaces could do that. Okay? The simple laws of physics demonstrate that no matter how effective any bump fire mechanism may be, and rapidly bumping a shooter's finger on and off, finger on and off that trigger. Remember, the trigger still has to be engaged again for another shot to come out. As quick as that is, you need a new statute if you want to regulate that. And um, that's the story. But this was Judge Dobney Friedrich, a Trump appointee to the D.C. District Court. And by the way, it's another thing people forget: the most important. Important cases dealing with federal regulations. Most important circuit is the D.C. Circuit. There's the district court and the appellate court. Democrats have an 11 to 3 majority on the district court and a 7 to 4 majority 
on the appellate court and not all the Republican appointees as we see are good. And all the Obama appointees are pretty young and that's the majority of them. Just know that 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 court is lost for, for a generation. I'm just saying if there's ever a case where it's appropriate to use the courts, it is now. Again, it's not that they could strike down, but again, this is not even a law. This is this is Trump's just reclassifying composite plastic components as machine guns. It's unbelievable. Think about it this way. Lower courts have mandated that Trump continue Obama's discretionary and often illegal executive power grabs. They placed universal injunctions on the president for simply reverting back to previous policies in place before Obama on a variety of immigration, labor, environmental, and education issues. They've violated, in doing so, they violated the most established sovereignty doctrine of the Supreme Court. They've taken over every aspect of immigration and our border, single-handedly spawning the worst migration crisis in our history. They have claimed that the president doesn't have the authority to shut down immigration when Chief Justice Roberts himself just said, Last year, that 1182 after statute, quote, exudes deference to the president in every clause and entrusts the president the decisions whether and when to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, for how long, and on what conditions. Yet, months later, the lower court injunctions are still in place and Roberts remains silent. He allows the injunctions to go on. Suddenly, Roberts gets gun-shy, pun intended, when it comes to placing injunctions on a clearly both unconstitutional and just outside of statute edict of this administration. (laughs) You see how one-directional and outcomes-based these courts are. It's amazing. You know, you think, all right, they're obsessed with shutting down Trump actions. All right, so at least, you know, it's like, you know, a broken clock being right twice. At least a couple liberal stuff he does that truly is unconstitutional will benefit from the court. No, no. Because the bottom line is the courts are all political. It all has to do with who you are. Illegal aliens are favored. If you're a particular race or you engage in certain sexual practices, that makes you a better person. But if you're just an American citizen wanting to live under the Constitution, not have your property taken, not be forced to engage in commerce, not be killed by illegals, and to defend yourself with a right that I don't even like calling Second Amendment because that diminishes it. Madison thought you didn't even need the Bill of Rights. It was a natural law. It predated it. The right. The, meaning pre-existing, shall not be infringed. Yet the courts have excised the shall not be infringed from the Second Amendment and placed it on the immigration clause of the Constitution. Oh, whoops, there is no immigration right. I forgot. Folks, that is how screwed up the courts are. That is why it's a one-way street, a one-way ratchet, and a dead end for conservatives. But I just wanted you to know how I feel 
when there is an appropriate way to take a case to the court, when it isn't appropriate, and then the reaction of the other branches. The other branches could always push back. It's a discussion for another time. Tomorrow, we'll go back more to some of the political issues, all, all, the, all the political news going on. There is a lot going on, but I wanted, I wanted just to tie all this together because there really is so much going on. And again, we're told whatever the courts do is final. So that's where we need to focus. Let me know if you have any questions. Tweet me at armconservative. Email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Until next time, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. God bless you all. 